And we are continuing to work our way through 1 Corinthians. And uh, this morning, I think it's going to be a, a, an interesting sermon, probably something that, that uh, many of you have not heard a sermon on before, and that is singleness and widowhood to the glory of God. Uh, but that's really what we're talking about this morning. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, why don't you stand? We'll read the Word of God out of respect for the Word of God, and then we will get to work. So 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to start in verse 1, but we're going to really concentrate in verses 6 through 9 this morning. But I want to give us context. So verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And you can be seated. All right, so we're continuing through 1 Corinthians here on this sexual ethics kind of uh, uh, topic that Paul's been talking about since really the midpoint of chapter 6. He's going to go all the way through uh, chapter 7. And again, I just want to remind you that God has a comprehensive plan for absolutely every area of our lives. You've heard me say that several times now, but, but you really, really need to understand this. God didn't just say, hey, you know, believe in my son Jesus, that he died for your sins, rose again, and then... You know, go figure it out. You'll, you'll work it out. No, he's actually given us what his will is concerning our lives all the way down to the marriage bed. This is not unimportant to God. This is not sort of in the appendix of the Bible. There's no appendix, but if there were, it's not in there. This is, this is right here, front and center. How do, how do we know what God's will is here with singleness and widowhood to bring glory to God? This is, this is, again, part of the, the larger umbrella of sexual ethics. The most intimate act, the most pleasurable act that can be had, God has a plan for and is concerned about, and there are ways to violate his will, and there are ways to bring him glory for it. So he either receives worship or is deprived of worship based on our understanding. So again, this morning we're talking about singleness and widowhood uh, to the glory of God. When I was in Bible uh, college... There was sort of this, like, constant, uh, I don't know, nervousness amongst most of the kids. Uh, because let's just be honest, the reason a lot of people go to Bible college is to get married. That's why they go there. There's the joke that the ladies go there to get their MRS degree. You'll get that. It'll come. But they wanted to get married. And that's not wrong, by the way. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want to go and find a spouse. For most people, there is a drive to get married. There's this intrinsic uh, desire for companionship that expresses itself ultimately in the one flesh union. But 
that desire does not exist for everybody. And, and really, more to Paul's point here, it is not a requirement that Christians get married. Just because you are in Christ doesn't mean there's some command that you have to go get married. And this is really important, you guys, especially in our context where this, you know, we're, we're small, conservative church where, you know, we, we applaud uh, marriage and we encourage marriage. Marriage is good. Uh, we've got lots of families, lots of kids, lots of homeschooling going on. But listen, it is wrong to think that the only way that you can bring glory to God is to get married. You can live a single life to the glory of God. That is one avenue of faithfulness. And that's what Paul is touching on here. So we need to understand that. And actually, in Paul's mind, what we saw here in verses 6 through 9 is actually the single life. If you can be single and be content as single, that's the highest good in the kingdom of God. Because you can actually work for and minister in ways that other people can't. Singleness gives you an opportunity to do that. There's just avenues of service for the Lord that singles have that married folks don't, and that's a good thing. So again, we're we're unpacking this sexual ethic, broader sexual ethics, and here it's in singleness. So, so the first point that I want to make this morning is that singleness is an option that brings glory to God. Singleness is an option that brings glory to God. Look at verses 6 through 7. Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So, so this, is, this is a legitimate option for believers is, is to be single their, life, their whole life and to serve the Lord. And let me just say right out of the gate, I think it's actually a tragedy that many Christians look at adult singles as though they are broken, as though there's something wrong with them. Why, why aren't you married? What's, what's, what's your problem? What's wrong? And they're often treated as second-class citizens of the kingdom. And at the same time, here's the thing, at the same time, many of those singles don't have the gift of singleness. They want to be married, and they're like dying inside that they don't have a wife, that they don't have a husband. They haven't settled down. They want kids. And, and so you have this, this really awkward thing where you have the, the married Christians in the church judging the singles, and the singles are like, I want a wife. I want a husband. And it's hard, and it's difficult. Uh, this attitude is pervasive in the church. I remember being 20 and not even dating Jody yet. I had graduated Bible college. I didn't have a girlfriend even at the time, and I'm like, I am just gonna die alone. <laughs> I was 20. I was 20. So you married people. Just remember what it was like to be single and wanting a spouse. When it, when you were single and you just desired somebody to live life with and be have a companion and even be intimate with. Those are not bad things, but just remember. But here Paul says it's actually the highest good if someone has the ability to live life without the desire to be married. And by that, I'm not talking about shacking up. That's not what's on his mind, right? There's shacking up a sin. That's that's sexual immorality. No, he's talking about somebody who, who can go their whole life in a contented way without a significant other of any kind. And, and that's okay. And they just... They just bring God. God. Paul says, not only is this okay, I would recommend this. This is a good thing for you to consider if you are, in fact, single right now. 
is many people don't have a faint or don't have a large desire to be married. And actually, that's Paul's life. He says, look, verse six, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. What's he talking about? He's not married. He says, I wish everybody were in my station of life. Most scholars believe that Paul had probably been married at some point in time. In Jewish culture at the time, if you weren't married by the time you were 20, usually people started asking what's wrong with you. That was just that was just Jewish culture at the time. And Paul was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He served in the Sanhedrin, which meant he was required to be married. So at some point he was married. Some people think, well, maybe his wife divorced him when he became a Christian. Um, I tend to think maybe his wife uh, died at some point. Uh, we get no indication that Paul had any children. Um, and and I, I, I can't imagine that Paul would um, say that he would wish that everybody were in a divorced situation like he was. So I, I think at some point he was married. She probably died. Um, again, we, we don't know for 100% sure. That's, that's all conjecture. But here's the beautiful thing. He's not commanding singleness. And he's also not commanding marriage. As a believer, you have options. You have options for how you will live your life. And that's the beautiful part. This is radically different than Judaism at the time. It's even radically different than many people in just Christian culture. Many people in Christian culture, at least in America, if you're not getting married, if you're not pursuing that, if you don't have a desire for that, there's something broken about you. That could be, it couldn't be further from the truth. Singleness to the glory of God is an option. How can you please God by being single? Glad you asked. Look down at verse 25. seems like maybe there was some persecution going on in and around Corinth that, that gave Paul this idea that, that singleness for them and their context might be better. So he says in verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed, those would be people who, uh, it, it's stronger than engagement. So we have that engagement period. Betrothal is stronger than engagement. It's, it's where you've actually had a binding agreement. You, you consider yourselves husband and wife, but you have not consummated the marriage. So you're not officially, officially married, but you're, you're pretty close. So he said, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, meaning single. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. Can I get an amen from the married people? Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. We'll, we'll explain that in a few weeks, but, but let's keep going. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, 
how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has and it has to be, let him do what he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. The Corinthians lived in a situation where marriage would, would be tough. There, there was persecution going on, there was distress going on, that sort of thing. I mean, if you live in a society where you're so worried about your own safety and the safety of your family, that when you go to work, you're like, is, are things okay at home? Like, are they getting attacked right now? Your heart is divided. It's very difficult to be, be effective at work or the kingdom or whatever. But he's clear that getting married is not a sin either. But we have to understand that singleness is a legitimate option in the kingdom of Jesus. So four years ago, we were sort of in the infancy stages of, of planting RBC. And uh, our family went over to Silverwood for the day. And I was standing in line for one of the wooden roller coasters. And I started up a conversation with this young guy. And we were chatting. And it turned out that he was on the search committee for a little uh, conservative church over in Idaho. And so I was chatting with him about it. What's your church like? What are you looking for? That sort of thing. He's like, well, you know, we, we, we want a younger guy. Uh, we'd like him to be married. We'd like him to preach verse by verse. We want him to have kids, um, you know, just, just solid. And I go, wow, that's a big red flag, brother. And he's like, what? I said, I am your perfect candidate. I meet all of your requirements. The problem is, is that your desire or your demand for a pastor that he be married and that he have children is unbiblical. Think about the people that could not pastor his church. Like the Apostle Paul. Like the Apostle Barnabas. Oh, I don't know. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus could not pastor that church because they had a requirement that the pastors that were applying be married. We laugh and chuckle, and it was kind of funny, but you guys, this is the unbiblical model that many people have in their mind as to what pastoral ministry looks like, that somehow the only legitimate life that can be lived is the married life. Paul says, not so. And he gives a lot of attention and a lot of reasons why the single life is a great life to live for the glory of God. And you say, well, wait a minute, but isn't part of the requirement in 1 Timothy 3 that a pastor be a one-woman man? Yes. But what that phrase means is that the man not be promiscuous, not be a womanizer. So whether he's married or not, it means that he shouldn't be out with the ladies. If he's married, he should be with his lady and no one else. There's no biblical obligation for a pastor to be married, and there's no biblical obligation for a Christian to be married. There are moral requirements that are set in stone, but not situational ones. Look over at chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians for a minute. This is a little bit longer section, but again, I think it's helpful. And here's more evidence, I think, that Paul was a widower because he said that he has the right to take along a believing wife, which he wouldn't have if he were divorced. 
So the idea is, hey, I'm a missionary. I'm going around. I have the right to have churches support me financially. And if I were to have a wife, they would have to support her too. So, so just big, big picture principle. When we send a missionary out, we are supporting the missionary, his wife, and their family. There are some people who think, no, nah, we don't support the family. We just support the missionary. No, it's a package deal at that point. You, you, you send out all of them for the glory of God. So here's his argument, chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, I planted your church. You know I'm legitimate. You know I should be supported. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's, it's the pay your preacher thing. He and Barnabas were apparently single, but they were not second class citizens in the kingdom. They had a right to be supported. They had a right not to work. They had a right to go and preach the gospel as their full time, full time job. It wasn't like Peter and his wife could just sit back and let the checks roll in and, and Paul's got to go out and hustle. No, if you're preaching the gospel, if you're proclaiming the Lord, you should be paid. You should be financially supported. Look back at Matthew 19 for a minute. I want to show you kind of an unusual passage that gets to this idea that the single life is legitimate. And here we actually see it from Jesus' very own words. This is actually Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But he actually touches on the issue of singleness towards the end. Remember, Jesus was single. And Jesus was sinless. So this is a legitimate option. It's okay. It really is. But notice what Jesus says at the end. So Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they no longer are two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So is it lawful to get a divorce, Jesus? He says, no. Well, but what about Moses? Didn't Moses allow it? He says, well, Moses allowed it, but God did not. The only exception is sexual immorality or porneia. It's that immorality in the betrothal stage that before marriage where they can they can call it off like like what Joseph thought was happening with Mary earlier in Matthew's gospel. Now, get this. The disciples are astonished at that. Really? You you can't divorce your wife Jesus for just any reason that's not possible? Are you sure about that Jesus? He doubles down on it. Look at verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's the commitment on the line. Notice what Jesus says. Pedal to the metal. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What are we supposed to receive? Why why is he talking about eunuchs all of a sudden? Parents, I will let you define eunuchs for your children. Uh, But the bottom line was, um, a eunuch was unable to have sex, and therefore they, they would not get married in that society. They lived the single life. And here's what's the interesting thing about eunuchs. It was usually a life of honor and privilege. Do you know in the Bible where we usually hear about eunuchs living? It's in the king's palace, serving usually in the highest echelons of government, next to the queen, next to the maids, that sort of thing. They were eunuchs to keep them from immorality. But where they served was actually in the highest place of the kingdom. So there were eunuchs who have been so from birth. So if you were a family that somehow was close to the king, and the king's like, hey, I want your son to serve me, so, so when you gave birth and had a son, they would make him a eunuch. And then when that son got old enough, they would go serve in the king's palace. This is a position of honor, of high authority. But you were a eunuch. Or maybe later in life, you had the opportunity to serve the king or serve his wife or serve the maidens in the palace. And you would make yourself a eunuch. You'd go get surgery. Again, it would be in the king's palace. You had this authority. You had this, this high honor. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He was probably second in command of all of Ethiopia because he was next to Queen Candace at the time. Jesus says there's another situation where people become eunuchs. And I don't think he means physically. I think what he's actually talking about is spiritually. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And what I think he means there is that when they realize the high commitment of marriage... That you are in it. You are in it till death do us part. They go, it's better not to marry. Because I've seen how this goes down. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. And 
I think I can make it through life without getting married. I think I can make it through life keeping that desire under control. And so they're not making themselves a physical eunuch, but they are not committing to the covenant bond of marriage. And here's the deal. Just like every other eunuch, what they then are doing is allowing them to serve in a high place of honor, not for some earthly king, but for King Jesus. This is a special, special calling that some people have. And that's what Paul is getting to back in 1 Corinthians 7. Single life is a legitimate way to bring honor and glory to Jesus. It's a legitimate way. So that's point one. Point two is that singleness is actually a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It brings glory to God. It's also a gift from God. Verses 6 through 9 in 1 Corinthians 7. So now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So singleness is actually a gift from God. Now, before I unpack this, let me just say, I don't think that Paul is talking about single people who really want to be married. That's not what he's talking about. So, so sometimes single people hear this and they're like, oh my goodness, I hope I don't have the gift. I don't want to have the gift. I want, I want to get married. I want to have babies. Like, he's not talking about you. He's talking about people who don't have that desire and who maybe are wondering, well, why don't I, am I broken? Why don't I have that desire? You're not broken. You've got a gift from God. Actually, the Greek word is charisma. It's the same word we get spiritual gifts. You've been given a gift. Singleness has been graciously bestowed upon you so that you might serve your king in a way that not many other people can. It's actually a gift because it supersedes the normal order of things, the normal desire that people have for marriage. And instead of serving your spouse, you can go serve Jesus in ways that cannot happen. So again, let me just encourage you. If you have that gift or you know someone who has that gift, it's a good thing. It's not bad. You're not broken. You need to encourage those people. And and if you know people who maybe have that gift, stop jabbing them about not being married. It's okay. It brings glory to God. It's his gift to them. And you should encourage them and love them and invite them into your life. A lot of times those who have the gift of singleness feel like the third wheel or fifth wheel or whatever you want to call it because they just feel different than everybody else. They're part of the kingdom. We bring them in and we love them and we encourage them, not as someone who is broken, but as someone who is especially gifted to go proclaim the gospel in a way that we can't. That's what we need to be doing. You remember that whole Chaz chop thing that went down in Seattle last year where they like those people like took over six blocks of Seattle and it was a bunch of nonsense, that sort of thing. I know a group of people from the Tri-Cities who are like, hey, you know what those guys need? They need Jesus. And we're going to go preach them Jesus. They got off work, clocked out, drove over to Seattle and started preaching the gospel to those people. I'm, I can't do that. I got bedtimes. I, I've got waffles I got to make in the morning. Like, I, I, I've, got, I've got food i got to make and, and bottoms i got to wipe. Like, they're, they're preaching the gospel to thugs. 
They can do that because they are not tied to anybody. They can drop on a moment's notice and go proclaim the gospel in ways, guys, that, that most of us just cannot. Now, you can debate the wisdom of going over to CHOP and preaching Jesus, but the point is, is they have a way to minister that most of us do not. And listen, God will reward them for ministering in that very unique way. And he will reward them handsomely. Third point. For most people, singleness is temporary. For most people, singleness is temporary. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain unmarried or remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So this is where we know that just because you're single right now does not mean that you necessarily have the gift of singleness. Because Paul anticipates that a lot of widows and a lot of unmarried folks are actually going to get married. They, they don't have a, a long-term gift, as it were, of singleness. And, and again, I, I think this is probably everyone's fear when they hit 22 and they're not married. Like, do I have the gift? No, you probably don't have the gift. You probably don't. God in his sovereignty has you single for now, but that's probably not your long-term station. So we need to understand that in this section, there are many groups that he's talking about. He's talking about married people. He's talking about betrothed people on their way to marriage. He's talking about single people who have no current interest. That's these verses. Single person who, who has no desire to be married. He also talks about widows and, and those who are divorced and unmarried to or married to unbelievers. He's heading every station of life. But if you're single, Paul says, maybe consider staying single. Maybe don't, maybe don't worry about getting married. Maybe this is the, the path that God has for you. It's Paul's path, and he did what no other apostle could do because he was not restrained by a wife. But if you're burning with passion, if you desire a husband or a wife, that's okay too. Get married. I remember sitting in, in Bible class, and uh, our, our professor was sitting there, and, and he just straight called out the guys in the class. He, he said, brothers, there are a lot of godly women in this room right now who would love a wife, or who would love a husband. Not that way. Who would love a husband. And he said, you guys, you need to get off of your knees and get on the phone. You need to go pursue these godly ladies for the glory of God. There's, there's no the one out there. There's no, you're, there's no the one. There's somebody who is a Christian, who loves the Lord, who encourages you in Christ-likeness. Go pursue them. Go pursue them. And there's a lot of risk of putting yourself out there. It'll be awkward if you get shot down. I love the Tampa Bay Buccaneers coach who says, no risk it, no biscuit. You put it out there. You go. And maybe this is going to sound uncouth, but ladies, you can approach the guys too, you know. I know. Your whole courting paradigm just got turned upside down. But if Jody hadn't been just a little bit persistent 18 years ago and six children later, we probably wouldn't be married. But here we are. And one of the most godly ladies in the Bible, Ruth, pursued her husband, Boaz. It goes both directions, you guys. It goes both directions. That was all for free. 
You're welcome. I'll be out of town this week. He also addresses widows here, too. I want to touch on widows because I think it's important. Look at verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, so becoming a widow or a widower has effects in terms of sexual intimacy. Widows and singles who desire to be married are both in the same boat. Right? Their, their, their outlet, as it were, for sexual intimacy was, was stopped. And I think, I think it's, it's helpful to understand if, if somebody loses their spouse, it is biblically legitimate for them to go and remarry. They, they should maybe consider staying single so that they can go serve the Lord, but it's not wrong if they go and get remarried. In fact, look down at verses 39 and 40 here in chapter 7. Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the spirit of God. So if you're married and your spouse dies, it's okay to get remarried. It's not a sin. It's not disrespecting your former husband. It's not disrespecting your former spouse. My kids know that if I die, it is good and right for mama to go get remarried. That guy is not going to replace daddy. That's not the point. That guy is going to love mama and help raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's a good thing. You say, well, yeah, but so-and-so just got remarried because they want to have sex. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's the reason Paul gives, to go get remarried. That's okay. He says, if you are desiring this intimacy, go get remarried. Literally, Paul says, that's the only reason you should get married. That's actually what he says. If you don't need intimacy, don't get remarried. But if you're going to burn with passion, then go get remarried. That's okay. That's good and right. We don't believe in eternal marriage. This is very important. Your marriage covenant is severed at death, whether you die or they die. There's no looking back. It's gone. Because the minute somebody enters into glory, you know what happens? The true marriage begins between them and Jesus. Marriage, remember, is just a picture of the love between Christ and the church that is consummated in glory. And so people can get married. Notice he says, to whom she wishes. To whom she wishes. There are no limits. Well, except they need to be a Christian. But there's this weird thing that often happens when somebody's spouse dies, and they they either think or other people think, well, they can't get married to them, because that would be weird. Well, why? I mean, if they're a believer, and if there was nothing going on before, why not? What 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 the problem is? Well, they can they can go get married, marry whom she wishes. There's no there's no courtship process for widows or widowers. There is that one exception when he says only. In the Lord, at the end of verse 39. Only in the Lord. Christians only marry other Christians. Not someone who just says they're a Christian, or someone who plays the game as being a Christian, or someone who just, you know, just recently got a spiritual vibe. No, somebody who has been in Christ, and we know they're in Christ. But if that's the case, if you've got two believers, let them get married. Let them have that companionship. 
In fact, look over a couple books to the right to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. Paul is talking about how to care for the widows in the church. In ancient times, you have to understand, there was no social security. There were no IRAs. There's no life insurance for the wife if her husband died. And she was destitute unless she had children. There would be no way to provide. In fact, many uh, in the Roman world, many widows ended up becoming prostitutes just to put food on the table. And so this is a section about how to care for widows in the church. And the bottom line is, is if there is absolutely no one else, no other family to care for her, and if she is a godly woman, then the church gladly takes care of widows, gladly financially supports widows. But there are some requirements. So look at 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 through 16. He says, let a widow be enrolled, and that's like on a, on a, a list of people that, that they would support. So let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. She's got to be a really godly lady. Verse 11 but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, or their former, the idea is their former commitment to staying single. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry bear children, manage households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So again, if the widow is over 60 and is basically a model of godliness, the church takes care of her if no one else will. But what about younger widows? What about a, a soldier's wife? Soldier dies in battle when she's 28, 29 years old. What then? Paul says, go get married. Go get married. Go, go have babies. Manage your household well. That, that way Satan's not attacking you for going out and just, just slandering. We know you don't have the gift of singleness because you were already married. So that's not your gift. You desire a spouse. So don't go house to house bothering everybody else. Go settle down. Go start a family and manage your own household well. So if you know a young widow or a widower, you need to know that it is okay and good to go get remarried and have children. It's not wrong. It's not disrespecting their spouse, their former spouse. In fact, if they don't get remarried, they could get caught up in gossip and be a busybody, which brings reproach upon the gospel. In that case, going to get married is good. The plan of God in Christ for his church includes all these things, you guys. It includes marriage. It includes widowhood. It includes singleness. It includes those who genuinely have the gift of singleness where they can go and they can preach the gospel and live to the glory of God in ways that not many will. And we should encourage it. We should, we should applaud those who understand how God has wired them and encourage them to go and serve the Lord all the more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you've gifted the church. Thank you that you've given us so much liberty in Christ. And I pray for those who are single and want to be married, Lord, that you would give them spouses. 
and you would give them peace in the meantime. I pray for those who are single and have no desire that they would use this time of their lives to preach the gospel, to disciple others, that you would be honored. I pray for those who are widows, Lord, that you would comfort them, that you would give them grace and wisdom in the days and years ahead, that you might get glory and honor. May we love each other. May we respect each other with our families. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.